Good morning. Bear with me today because I don't know if I'm going to make this work properly. Mike? Hello, can you hear me now? I'm always told to shut up and now I'm told to speak up. What's going on here? And by the way, I'm wearing this medal. And like Mark said, I didn't expect anything. We, we had no expectations. All we wanted to do was make sure that we took away a lot of the pomp and ceremony for, for our Archbishop and give him an opportunity to be with the community. And I just want to say to all of us here at St. John's, all of you who came, you made him feel at home. You made him feel once again like he was way back in those times without all the, all the pomp and ceremony just to be in community with people again. And uh, we achieved that. Around the fire, under the scarred tree, and with all the things that we did. So I just want to say, firstly, thank you for all that you have done for the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, I did visit the Pope once. I had a private audience with him back in 2001. The one, Pope John. All I got there was a, I think this is real. But the Archbishop gave me this. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> yeah, we live in moments, don't we? And those moments become memories. And so this week has been a huge big moment for us. Not just for the visit of the Archbishop, but also for what we achieved yesterday. And on behalf of our, our uh, council here at St. John's, I just want to say thank you to all the team that have brought together this incredible uh, opportunity for us to hear voices from across the country and, uh, and across the cities here to talk about this important issue that we're going to face as a nation very shortly in terms of the referendum. And we heard those speakers yesterday. One of the guests that we had there yesterday too was uh, Mr. Jeff uh, Scott, who's on the uh, dialogue, the Uluru uh, Statement from the Heart Dialogue, uh, with all the other big noters. And he's thoroughly enjoyed it, and he's really going back with a good report from here uh, to, his, uh, to the team back there who are trying to get this referendum up and running in over the, over the line. But let me get into my sermon, otherwise I could be talking about yesterday and this week for a long time to come. Job, an Aboriginal story. In this story here, philosophical term, but it means the act or an instance of placing two or more things side by side, often to compare or contrast or to create an interesting insight or effect. Artists used a lot. Or it's an invitation to compare, contrast and consider 
the relationship between two story elements more closely. Juxtaposition requires a direct side-by-side -side placement, like a parallel story. And so when I look at the book of Job, I see a parallel story with our story, with the Aboriginal people, my people, and so many other uh, Indigenous peoples who have been uh, uh, colonised. And thank you, Kate, for your reading. I could have sat here all day and just let you read the Bible, read the whole book of Job. I think in, in, in this particular story, what we are studying here, it's a study of trauma, it's a study of loss, it's a study of suffering, grief. It's talking about historical pain, it's talking about personal pain, it's talking about incredible contemporary trauma that this man faced. And so it becomes a parallel story in that particular way. That's the Lord If I was to give a text for this, it would be John 10.10. 10. I've often quoted this in, in, in other contexts, that this text here seems to summarise very clearly our struggles and Job's struggles. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. How people do know what it means to have things stolen. We know what it's like to see death. We know what it's like to see our cultures and our families and our languages, a whole range of our treasures, completely annihilated and smashed, destroyed. And so we can identify with this. And many of us are asking as Indigenous Australians, we know that he's come, the thief comes, but we don't know what this other part of it means yet. What Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. It's a big question for us. It's a big struggle. And as you would have heard yesterday, we're still struggling with that side of this particular text. And underlining all of this story is this one question. Why? And in my work with all of our stolen generations, uh, particularly with the Kinsman men, when I was working with them, they said, Ray, this is the question I want to know. Can somebody answer this question? Why was I taken? Why did this happen to me? And we're here in Glebe in a very important part of the Australian community because Glebe, is, Glebe corporate here is where many of our young children were sentenced to the institutions as babies. Just up here in the Glebe courts. And so they know this story. And this is the beginning of their stories in this particular suburb just up the road here. Why? Why were they taken? Why? And we see in this story here that God says to Job that he is the most righteous person in all the earth. <laughs> he says that to Satan. Have you seen anyone like him? But then 
The accuser says, but if you remove all of these protections, all the things that he values, I bet you he'll curse you. And even when you see all of those things that have been removed in this story of all of his possessions, as Kate read, the last picture you see of Job is he's sitting in the burnt-out ashes of his beautiful ranch house that he had built for him and his family and his community from his riches. And he's there with all these boils all over him. And he picks up a bit of camel and he starts to scratch these sores. And as he's scratching his sores, his missus comes up to him and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? His response is very, very powerful. Listen to this response. And it's something that we, as indigenous peoples, are trying our hardest to come to grips with in that total, in, in, in the same type of maturity as Job. He says to him, he says to, he says to his wife, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in the deepest part of his trauma, when he has lost everything, you would expect him, like his wife, to start cursing God. To say, God don't, no longer exists. He no, no, no longer belongs to me or my story. Because he was a righteous man. He observed all the ceremonies and all the things that were important to his understanding of how to make sure that he was on the right side of God's life and plan. And so we see in this story this incredible why, why all the time. Oops, I think I've gone a bit too far here. There's three dialogues I just want to analyze uh, in the story here that relates not only to uh, the people, uh, to, to Job, but also to our people. The first dialogue, if it comes up, what's going to that? Oh, okay. The first dialogue, if you read there in, in Job chapter 3, is this dialogue about the day he was born. Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day he was born. It's the first thing that came out of his mouth. May the day on which I was to be born perish, as well as the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not care for it, nor light shine it, shine on it. May darkness and black gloom claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of that day, may the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Behold, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout enter it. For us, as Aboriginal people, that's January 26. Do we change the date? 
Can we eradicate that particular moment when those ships entered into our country here? And for Job, it was a day that he was remembering that if I wasn't born, I wouldn't experience this trauma, this tragedy, the things that have happened to me. And so why do we rejoice on that day? Well, that's the reason why our Aboriginal people can't rejoice on that particular day. So this is the first dialogue. He's saying, eradicate my story from the earth. Take it away from me. I don't want to remember the day I was born. Now, I know for our people, you know, we wake up every day knowing that we are a colonised people. Did you know that Jesus also was a colonised Jew? He knew the story, he knows the story. He knows what it's like to come under that kind of regime that continually brutalises his people. And so January the 26th, for Indigenous Australians, we call it Invasion Day for Aboriginal people. Every day is Invasion Day. Every day. And in this story here of Job, he cries out, Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call out aloud, but there is no justice. The second dialogue in here is he's weighing up his burden and he's asking this question about his suffering and his trauma. How do you weigh this up? Where is the scales that we could use to say this is how much it's hurting? This is how you weigh my pain, my suffering, my trauma. It's in these scales. And Job is saying, look, my, my complaint is just. How do we measure his suffering? How do you measure our suffering? What policy is going to change the ways in which we live in this country, in our own country? Where's the measuring stick? Do we have a basic right to complain and tell our story? Job is saying, oh, that my exasperation, my pain and suffering were weighed, and all my calamity were laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. I know working with our stolen generations, that's the question. They ask continuously, how do you weigh up my pain? Where's the scales and balances that could take this incredible pain that I have and say, this is how much it weighs so heavily on my spirit and on my life. It's completely destroyed. Just like Job, completely destroyed him. How then do you weigh up that particular trauma? And I have, amongst us here today, members of the stolen generation, and I hope I don't traumatise you, So my complaint is just, how do we measure that suffering? 
What policy can make things right? Closing the gap, a voice to parliament, a treaty, all of these things that we're looking at to try to ease the incredible traumas and sufferings of our peoples. Would a treaty satisfy Germany? Another policy is actually when you look at the other side of his story, the dialogue, and you look at the ways in which his uh, friends were talking to him, the accusations that they made about him, they kept on saying that he had done something wrong, that he had done a sin, he had created, he had created his own problem. They were blaming the victim. And then when the victim takes on that particular knowledge and understanding, we then portray that and talk about that from our own victim's approach. And so here we have the story of the victim again in this story. Very similar. Why? 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 Why do I have to suffer this? My complaint is just. No, nope, we've gone too far again. For Job, he was asking in, in uh, chapter 6 of that passage of, of the book, he said, look, help me understand, he asks in this dialogue, he says, help me understand where I have erred to be treated like this. Now people ask that question, what have we done wrong to be treated like this? What crime have we committed? What sin have we done? Why were we placed under the notion of terrorilius? Or why did Reverend Samuel Marsden say, you know, the Aborigine is the most degraded of the human race. The time has not yet arrived and received the great blessings of civilization and the message of Christianity. Or King O'Malley, when they were framing the uh, Constitution back in the 1900s, he said, look, there's no scientific evidence that the Aboriginal is a human, a human being at all. Why me? Why us? Job is asking that same thing. My complaint is just. I am a victim here. And I don't know why. I still don't know why. Job says, look, if I have sinned, what have I done to you, God? You who see everything we do. Why do you make me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? Because you're God. You have the capacity, you have the power, you have the authority to forgive all my sins. You remember back in the very first passage that was read so beautifully by Kate, that God said, no, you're the most righteous person in all the world. So where did he hurt? Where did he sin? He's asking that question.
There is another dialogue in here before we get to that final one. Job asks this question. He says, look, indeed I know that this is true. How can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that this terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it, as it is now, no one stands with me. How can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. And so Job is asking, who's my advocate? Who's my mediator? Who's going to stand there and be someone who would say, God, enough's enough. He's an innocent guy. What do you keep on crushing him for? Who's our advocate? How many more times do we have to have a royal commission or another Senate report or some other investigation into the struggles of our people? How many more times? And at the end of the day, who is our advocate? Do we have to rush off again to the United Nations, to the, to the international courts to, to put our claims again to the world community? God, are you hearing us? Are you hearing us? Where's my advocate? Who's going to be the, the lawyer who takes up my case and advocates for us? I know when I was working with our Kinchula men, that was one of the very serious issues that we had to confront. How do we take a case, a class action in court? And we went and spoke to a number of lawyers, we had them coming through the door like that, was, but none of them would take up that case. It was too hard, too difficult. And in the end, we did get, get one. We kept it all under wraps, and some of our men started to get some compensation. Not that much, but if you compare what happened here in Australia to a law, law to a case that happened in, uh, uh, a class action that happened in Canada, you can then compare or weigh up the balances between that struggle over there in Canada with the residential schools and what happened here in our institutions. They got compensated and even the churches had to pay out their compensations to the, uh, the residential school survivors. And so we've had to have royal commissions. We've had to have more investigations into this story to try to convince us that something happened here. Who was my advocate? And the only way we can get justice is through litigation. And we still ask the question, how can we argue? I have young uh, Aboriginal people who've been taken into foster homes and other, other places. And they're saying, Unc, Where's my justice? Because I was up here in the Glee Courts too, but they didn't take me into those homes, they stuck me in other homes. Or they stuck me with other families. 
places I, I didn't even know and didn't want to be a part of. So where's my justice? Who's going to advocate for me? Who's going to be my mediator? And so we're stuck with this dialogue, who is my advocate? What will help us achieve justice? Do we need another Royal Commission? Where is the church in all of this? In all of these struggles? One of my favorite characters in history is a bloke by the name of Thucydides. You read about him in Plato's dialogues in the, um, what's that big book in uh, The Republic. Thucydides in there. And in that first book, this character comes out of the, in the into the streets and he says to uh, Plato, when they were trying to work out what justice is in his case, Thrasymachus says to him, justice is nothing other than the advantage of the strong. It's only in the interest of the powerful. Justice is only in their interests. It seems to resonate very strongly with a lot of our people because it's the government that makes those rules. It's the powerful that say, this is what justice will be. We'll give you this compensation for all your pain and struggle, even though it doesn't remove the pain. Or we will put this policy in place, or we will close the gap, or we will do all of these other things here. Justice is only in the interests of the powerful. And it seems that the powerful will define what justice is. It will, the justice, uh, the powerful also design what justice is. The powerful also deliver what justice is for us. And it seems that the powerful also defend what they mean by justice. Then after these incredible dialogues that Job has, get rid of the day that I was born, is there someone who can actually weigh up my struggles and my pain, my trauma, and see how much it weighs in the balances of justice? Is there a way in which I can find a good lawyer to represent me in the courts before our God? Is there someone around you? And then God turns up. His final dialogue. And I'll close after this. I promise you. God's dialogue starts in Job 38. And God's intervention is more like an invitation to Job. When he shows up, when God shows up, he doesn't offer an apology to Job. He doesn't take him back into history and say, well, look, me and Satan had a bit of a chat about you, and I said that you were the most righteous person on all earth, and that he did all these things here. Blame him. No, he didn't do that. No justification for his actions, for God's actions. 
No explanation of the meeting with Satan. No healing. Job is still traumatized when God turns up. And in, God, in, in, in God's uh, dialogue, the very first thing he does, he, he, he says to uh, Job, what don't happen to you? He says, look, Job, were you there when I created this world, laid the foundations of the world? Now, if you're in a traumatized state and someone is there to help you and they put this particular question to you, how are you going to respond? <laughs> Fancy Job turning, turning a God turning up at a KBH meeting and saying, well, listen, brothers, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? I know what I'm be saying. What's this got to do with my trauma and my pain and what happened to me? It's got nothing to do with me. And yet this is God talking to Job in his traumatized state. A fascinating story, isn't it? Brings in a different way of looking at it. And so, one of the ways in which I started thinking about this is that God here is offering Job an invitation. Not about healing, not about all of that stuff, but an invitation to know more about him and his love and his grace and his power, even in his trauma. One of the things about this particular passage, or one of the ways in which I like to think about this particular story from this perspective when God turns up and asks these questions, is the fact that God takes Job back into the beginnings of it all. Not of his trauma, it goes beyond that. He goes way back into the beginning. And he starts to talk about all the things that he's created. Puts that kind of perspective into it. This is who I am, Job. Not about you and your traumas. Traumas are part of the human story since Genesis. But this is who I am. I'm the one who created all of this. Including the trauma. Can you see a God who can do that? That can create and also destroy? I find that hard sometimes to reason that through. But in this story here, I see this happening with Job. In his trauma, he's saying, look, I am still God. And he takes him back into the beginning of things. One of the ways in which I could see it is that God takes him back into the beginning where everything began. And I'd like to interpret this a little bit differently. 
all others have had a go at it too, but he takes him back into Genesis 1.1. Bereshit Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. One of the problems we have is, you know, we're talking this language, this English language is not biblical language or even Aboriginal language. And I think it can be translated in three ways, this in the beginning. It can be stated as a statement that the cosmos had an absolute beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and you have this linear development. Or as a statement describing the conditions of the world when God began creating. So when in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was untamed and shapeless. So before this, before the beginning, God was there. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And the Omega. And so this word beginning can sometimes throw us off on who God is. And I think this is what God, God is saying to Job in his traumatized state. Before you were formed, before the world began, I was there in the beginning, thinking this thing out, constructing in my mind how this world would look. Another uh, person has wrote, is taking all of Genesis 1 and 2 as the background information, you would say that when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth being untamed and shapeless, God said, let there be light. And so this word beginning can have different meanings for us. Inside the beginning or before the beginning, before human comprehension of that word, Instead of this linear stuff, we've got a, a different world that was created that created this particular world. And I think that's where Job is trying to take, or God is trying to take our friend Job into that beginning because if he can get a glimpse, an insight into that, if we can get a glimpse, even as Aboriginal people, even here at St. John's, if we can get a glimpse of a God before the beginning, we'll get a better glimpse of who God is and how he looks after his planet in such a way. Because in the beginning, or inside the beginning, we know that we have been created in his image. We can understand the place of human beings as an integral part of his creation. We can understand the significance of salvation through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We can understand the experience that his love has for all of us, not his judgment. We have clarity about what justice is and what we need to do to achieve it. And we have a better understanding of what biblical reconciliation means because that's what biblical reconciliation means. Reconciling all things back to the beginning again. One of the things about us as indigenous peoples, when we went on this journey, we questioned a lot of our ways in which we were thinking. We were trying to decolonize our minds about this. And uh, one of the things that we realize is that West, mostly Western theology starts in Genesis 3 with a judging God. We said, well, let's start in Genesis 1 and see what God has created because that's his creation. And he created a beautiful world. Well, that's what he said. All good things. All 
was good. He saw that it was all good. So why don't we start there? And for us as indigenous theologians, that's where we start. Back in Genesis 1. Because it gave us a better understanding of who he is. And I think this is what God is doing with Job. Taking him back to that. Where everything is good. Giving him a hope and a vision and a reimagination of what can be, can be and what can be and what he can become. So I better give you some uh, closing insights. God sees us differently. We are made in his image. We are created to respond to his love and his grace. And all those negative perceptions about us are completely annihilated and destroyed when we go inside the door. We can say to Marsden, no, we are not depraved. We're made in God's image. We can say to those other politicians, no, we are human beings made in God's image. And maybe that's the challenge for us here in this country here, is to try to look beyond the labels and the characterizations that we have for each other, including male and female, and see all of us as made in God's image. That, to me, would, I think, revolutionize the ways in which we, even here at St. John's, can be together the very, very depth and understanding of God's love for people's. Concluding insights. In the beginning, we have a clear starting point, clear direction, clear destination, clear about God's beginnings because we know that he is the Alpha and the, media, uh, and the, Omega, the, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The only thing I have problems about this book, Job, is the Hollywood ending. When we read to the end, God restores all that he lost. He had you know, beautiful, six beautiful girls there, 12 of those. All the stuff that was taken was restored. Hollywood ending puzzles me, because you know, I'm thinking about my people. What, what, what's God going to restore from us, for us? How is he going to do that? Going to bring back that language for us? Is he going to enter the jails of all of our young children? Is he going to bring all of our kids that have been taken out of care home back to us? All those things that are of incredible pain. Is he going to give our land back? All of these things. That's why I'm a little bit concerned about the Hollywood ending. Just scratching my head about that one. And we can very easily, as Christians, say, well, that's when heaven comes, you know, when Jesus comes back again. We put it into the eschatological framework, but really, this happened in Job's lifetime. He was still around to see the great, incredible creation, the creator, give him back and restore all that he had. And so I lived for that day, to see all that we have lost restored to us in my lifetime, or perhaps in my child's lifetime. And that's why I say, and I always believe, that the institution that can bring all that back isn't the government, but we the church. 
we the church. So let's keep on working for him, reimagining what we can be and what we can do for our God because he is a God of love. And in the depths of our trauma, he demonstrates the power of his love and the depth of his love, regardless of how traumatised we are. Amen.